Welcome listeners to the High Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM. I'm your host and Hive Collective member, Julia Chiapella, and I'm here today with Santa Cruz and Monterey area poet, writer, and teacher, Patrice Vecchioni. Patrice is the editor of several highly acclaimed anthologies for young adults, including most recently, Ink Knows No Borders, Poems of the Immigrant and Refugee Experience, called a, quote, vivid and vital collection, end quote, by the Washington Post. She's the author of Writing and the Spiritual Life and Step into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. She has also published two collections of poetry. Her most recent book is My Shouting Shattered Whispering Voice a guide to writing poetry and speaking your truth. Kirkus Reviews called the book, quote, at once impassioned and practical poetic advice, end quote. And Ellen Bass called it, quote, more than a guide to writing poetry. It is an act of generosity and empathy, a helping hand to anyone who dreams of telling their truth through words on a page, end quote. Patrice has long been a strong voice in our poetry community. And Adrian Rich, Rich once said about Patrice, quote, she's one of those steady, vibrant, serious and passionate temperaments who continually relish our sense of communal, communal creativity, end quote. For many years, Patrice has taught poetry and creative writing to young people through her program, The Heart of the Word, Poetry and the Imagination. She's also a columnist for her local daily paper, the Monterey Herald. Patrice offers writing workshops for adults and children through her own program, The Heart of the Word. Welcome, Patrice. Hello, so Julia. Be- Hello, K-Squid. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here, and I'm just so happy you could join us today. I'm particularly grateful, I think, in my experience with young people for the work that you have done with young people and encouraging their writing, their imagination. You've done that for so many years in Santa Cruz. Many generations can look to the work that you did in the classroom and the encouragement that you did for those children's voices. And I just First off, want to thank you for that, because I feel as though it's been an enormous contribution to our community. But, but one of the, but the, usually what we tend to do on these shows, not all the time, but sometimes, is start off with a poem by someone else that the poet we are talking to has really appreciated or wants to share for some reason or another. And I'm really happy that the poem you brought is by, I believe, someone that you taught, correct? Yeah, I'm still teaching. 
I've been working this spring at a school called Rancho Cielo. It's on the very east of Salinas. It's um, a hundred acre property. And the students there in this program are all students continuation high school, this program. So these are kids who have been, um, most, most of these kids have been incarcerated and um, are, are out and are pretty darn determined to shift their lives. Terrific. It's so terrific that that is happening and that you're a part of that. So I am hoping that you can start us off by reading this poem to our listeners. Sure, I would love to. It's called My Monster by Persea Morales. My monster takes control. She whispers in my head, tells me I'd be better if I follow her instead. Swing my arm once and down the girl goes, but I can't do that. If I wish to go home, my monster guides me. She gives me my voice. Some say she clouds my judgment, but I know it's my choice. People don't like my monster. They say she's frightening. A sharp tongue and a roar like lightning. My monster's beautiful. She looks just like me. I would never hide her. She gives me protection. My monster is not a danger. I love her till the end. Some call my monster anger. I call her my best friend. This is such a lovely little poem, and I love the fact that this the the uh, the craft is evident here too for this this writer in the 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 rhyme scheme that the slant rhymes that are happening here, and um, it's really lovely on the page too. It's and her 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 content, what she's dealing with. Can you talk a little bit about what happened for? Prasaya during this writing process? Um, this girl, every time I come to the high school, whatever the assignment is, I don't actually remember what the assignment was this particular day, but it really doesn't matter. She just, she puts her head down and she writes. And you kind of have to say, okay, <laughs> class is over now. <laughs> Or else she'll keep going. She'll keep going. And they're not all, they're not one, it's not one continuous poem. She, she writes, she finishes something and she begins something else. She has a really, um, a real intense determination. And, and this poem makes me think of a quote that I have up in my office where I'm talking to you from, which comes from Deborah Levy, uh, novelist and memoirist who said, what is the wolf? Perhaps the wolf is the point of writing. And so I think that Persea in this poem, she's, she's really talking about how those of us who write, we're, we're kind of haunted. <laughs> you know, it's kind of is, a, you know, a monster. Um, and, and you may know the, the Santa Cruz playwright and short story writer, Spike Wong. Mm -hmm. He spoke to a class I was teaching to adults and, and he asked the question, what are you dragging behind you? 
And I, that also to me dovetails into this poem. You know, it's what, what are, what's, why do we write? We write because of the wolf. We write because of the monster. We write because we're dragging something behind us. That, that's not the whole story, of course, but that's what Perseus poem makes me think about. And I love the fact that she's actually done some work. And so there's this surprise at the end uh, about what that monster means. Yeah, I call her my so, best friend. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's also, you know, for women to own their anger is, 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 it, is important. And I, I, the older I get, my feminism becomes even more primary to who I am. And for her to say, some call my monster anger, I call her my best friend, is to really embrace her anger. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's not that we should always be venting it, but that it is a very strong part of, uh, for many women of our personalities. A very strong part, but also often, as you said, a very muted part. A very muted part. Very, very, and criticized, not only muted, but I guess criticizing is a way of muting. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly we've seen that time and time again as women achieve positions of leadership or governance and are vilified in those positions for precisely these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. because they don't, they don't fit the mold and look pretty and cross their legs at the ankle. Yeah. Yeah. Hillary Clinton being a perfect example. Perfect example, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the fact that Persia was able to get there and talk about this, especially as a, a young woman. Of course, you know, now I think I see so many young women that are just like, I don't care. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be myself. I'm not. So I do think, of course, we've made many gains, but there's still a long ways to go. So uh, but Prasaya being able to go there and do that for herself within the context of this poem is just fabulous. So how did she feel about the poem? I don't, I, I, she doesn't really want to talk a lot about her work. She, she's, she wants to talk and she's very engaged, but um, she wants the poems to stand on their own. You know, she's, I don't, I, I, you know, it's also about her age, you know, when we're young like that, to be able to write something this strong is one thing, but then to be able to step back and look at it, I think is, is, is another thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And there, there, there's, there's a lot of, I have a lot of respect for that, even though, as you say, it could be her age, but I have a lot of respect for her wanting the poem to stand on its own merits without the personality behind it was, yeah. and we are such a personality driven culture. So. Right. And some of her other work. So, so this is the, we're doing a small booklet of the students poems. And this is the first poem in the book, but in, in some of her other work, she, she says, um, I don't want to be my mother, though I love her to death, chasing a bag of sugar because that's all she has left. I'm scared to be my father because he's tied to a bottle. You know, she, so she's, <laughs> she is very self-aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, that's pretty good. 
That's pretty good. Well, Patrice, you've been uh, teaching students for so long. When did you start teaching? Uh, 1979 or 1980. And that was, was that when Heart of the Word was coined? Um, it was a few years later. I first ha had a different name for my, for my program, but it was a couple of years later. I, I started at, um, at the ECE program, the Early Childhood Education Program at Cabrillo, actually prior to probably in, you know, I get years, they're so long ago, I don't remember oh, yeah. what year, but, but in the late 70s sometime. And, um, and I said to Julie Edwards, you know, I, I want to teach poetry to kids. And she said, great, start here in the center with the little two and three-year-olds, four-year-olds, which I, which I did. And then I went to Galt. Galt had an open, it was called an open school, an open classroom, and I multi-grades. And I worked with the same 10 girls for a year hmm. um, writing, writing poetry. And that's, so I taught myself how to teach by teaching. And I was 18 years old. Wow. And you were at Galt for a number of years, our local elementary school, one of our local elementary schools, because after our enormous earthquake in 1989, you also created the earthquake poems with those children there. Yep. Yep. So I did, I was there with this initially, and then I left and then I came back and I was at Galt for 18 years uh, teaching poetry. And we did a book right after the earthquake called Fault Lines. Oh, Yeah. Terrific book. I remember that so well. Those kids at Bookshop Santa Cruz reading or in the tent, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Book Tent Santa Cruz. Yeah. They, they did yeah. a reading. Yeah. Amazing. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the High Poetry Collective on KSQD FM 90.7 FM. I'm Julia Chiapella, and I'm here speaking today with poet and teacher and writer Patrice Vecchioni. All right. Patrice, I'm, I know that your, your writing in recent years has kind of shifted, well, maybe not recent years, but you're working more on prose these days, but informed by your poetry, um, which you've worked on for years and years prior to that, I'm, I'm thinking we can start with, I, I'd love to have you read this poem um, that you wrote, Cut Paper Collage, but I'd love to have you first talk a little bit about the inspiration for this, because not only do you, do you write, but you do collage, mm -hmm. and, and this is a, this poem is actually a bit of an ekphrastic poem based on something your father did. Oh yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but it very much, it's very true. It, it is, yeah. So my father, um, who I love that, that you, you knew my dad and, and, and your husband, Eric, knew him well. And um, my dad was um, an artist who was most of the time was blocked and couldn't make art. And that was a difficult part of, of being himself. But he did early in my parents' courtship make a collage of my mother using cut paper, not fancy paper, very ordinary paper. And um, it's been in my off in my bedroom 
ever since he died in 2015. Um, I started this this poem actually um, on Facebook. <laughs> oh, wow. was, yeah, it was, and it was way shorter than it became um, as a Mother's Day post. And um, it was inspired in great part by um, what's happening with the Supreme Court and women's right to choose. So that's in the background of, of this poem about, it's really the background is women um, being the authority of their own choices and, and what, and, and speaking of that, I have an essay coming out tomorrow in the Monterey Weekly paper um, about my abortion that I had in 1977 that I never told my mother about, but she would, she would have been angry, but she would have uh, paid for it if I'd asked her to, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, so it's really was a Mother's Day poem and it's, it's long. And this poem and my other re recent poem that I wrote, I was asked by the Sid Perlman uh, Dance Collective to write a poem for a competition they had. And it was awarded an honorable mention um, and when I wrote both of these poems, having not been writing poetry very much for the last several years, the way I write is poems is completely different than how I wrote before. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? You know, the, the forms, so my prose is very, is very much informed by not only, maybe not even mostly by being a writer, but by, by being a poet, but by being a, a reader of poetry. That was my first language in essence. My mother read me poetry from the time I was an infant. And it was a, it was a language between us, um, different than the kind of poems that I later read and certainly very different than the poems I wrote or write today. Um, but poetry, when I wrote my first nonfiction book in 1999, Writing in the Spiritual Life, um, I had never, I'd avoided the paragraph, <laughs> you know, it was like, even in high school and college writing assignments, I would turn in poems because I felt inadequate at, at, at the paragraph. Um, and it was through writing that book and my editor at, at McGraw Hill, after I sent him my first pages, he, he said to me, Patrice, you're obtuse. <laughs> uh, and I was flattered because I never thought I was smart enough to be obtuse. Oh, funny. But it wasn't meant as a compliment. And he said, just tell stories. And, and that little, I mean, obviously that's what, what we do in nonfiction prose. But at the time I was um, terrified of the paragraph. And so I began to tell, tell stories and I fell in love with the form. And I ended up feeling that poetry was, um, too inaccessible to, to too many people. And I wanted my writing to be accessible, um, even if it ha was, had flourish to it and had a lot of metaphor and Im images to it. I wanted it to be accessible. And I, and I was started to feel that poetry was, um, was precious and I didn't want to be precious. I wanted to be foundational, located, you know, accessible. And so um, without deciding to not write poetry, I just didn't write poetry. Really, these are two of a handful of poems that I've written in the last 10 years. 
Let's hear this next one. Okay. So I just uh, let people know it's a longer poem. Cut paper collage, Nick's only portrait of Peggy. Here's my mother as envisioned by my father before they married. How much easier it is to romanticize someone beforehand. Before my father had backed her into a corner with the torrent of his voice before he had to hold her upright on the subway ride home after a few too many martinis, or maybe after a little corner backing and a few too many, but before the years piled up like so much dirty laundry. My poor mother bent on tidiness as a sign of getting closer to God. In this portrait, made from ordinary paper, construction, cardboard, one blue piece watercolor painted, then arranged like a solved puzzle, though she was not, my mother, solved. Shown from the bottom of her long porcelain neck to her crown, she appears to be floating, though in real life, that was her privilege, her right and promise only rarely. In this before time, rich in possibility, as before often is, I nearly see the mother I knew, though I came a few years after. She's looking out from the corner of her one visible eye, bluer than the blue-gray gaze I remember. Gray, she would say. My eyes are gray. But like my father, I saw some blue in them, the way a blue sky makes promises. He made her hair worn in a chin-length flip, fuller and with more bounce than I recall. Her lips wide and brown are mine, and some of what came from behind them, why that's mine too. She's looking past him. I can see that now. If only she could have done so with greater intention, a harder suitcase, a harder certitude, and a packed suitcase sooner. But then my chance at this endeavor would have been packed up too. Instead, Though she is gone from real life, her picture resides never resting in my bedroom. And with that always open eye looking for what she never got, she watches over my sleep each night, just as she did when I was a fitful, colicky baby. And these past years, I sleep well. She is here as she was when they were young and free and took the subway everywhere and stayed out late to clubs and the theater. This is the portrait that she returned, but didn't destroy as she did his letters after she left him and finally when I was nearly grown. For years she had pleaded, tell me when you are ready for me to leave your father and I will. Go now, I'd finally said, though hating myself for saying so, but hating her misery more. And the screaming matches that lit the constricted air of our small house as if a whole pack of her cigarettes had been ignited at once. So this is my mother before she had children, before life wore her down like an old dress that though once pretty should have been retired, it seems grown too tight. She's floating in this before, before my father wore her down, much the way she would crush one of her spent yet glowing Chesterfields on the city sidewalk. I love that delicate little twist she did with her slender ankle, her size eight and a half foot. 
My mother, who once dressed so beautifully in dresses and suits from B. Altman's and patent leather spindly high heels. This is her mother before her elder daughter had to watch her hell bent on catching the slightest shift in manner to prepare myself for the next catastrophe when she would become someone I never came to recognize. Someone mean who I could never know. But I never could, not even once could I catch that transformation. Hers was a magical and frightening ability to change right before my eyes with putting, without putting on a costume, not even a hat. This is my before mother, but not so long before she gave me poetry. Those candescent songs we recited together that foretold my future, though of course I couldn't have known it then. More than the words themselves, it was the breath of them, their cadence and occasions between us that lit my way, nuggets that later led to my own voice. We had one heartbeat once. In poetry, we still had it. Here she is collaged, complicated and beloved, hardworking and relentless. There was all that had come before, though it didn't show in her face till the years added up later. My mother, decades before the Catholic priest told her that despite, to spite, her firm belief in God, her devotion to the church, that because she used birth control, she could never receive the sacraments again. Before she dressed her baby daughter in blue to honor the Virgin Mary. Before she moved her young family first to Chicago and then to California. Had she only gone another way and sooner. My once beautiful mother, all children see their mothers that way, so skinny as a young girl, the doctor told my grandfather, despite prohibition, to brew beer in the cellar to, quote, fatten her up, and so he did. So how young had she become a committed drinker? This portrait, like all portraits, stills movement, even restlessness, and resist the future, though there was so much more to come. Yet here we have the beautiful before with its flipped hair, blue-eyed possibility. My mother, poised, before she made sure I would find my way, which she did, one impatient year at a time. This is how we do things, she said, knitting in me a solid love, something I could trust and do. My mother, before she smoked and drank herself to death. She gave me a strength and tenacity, despite her mind going muddled, that nothing could undo, that informs my every breath, each and every shallow breath, all the air I cautiously take in and make mine is because she was. Lovely, Patrice. You're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and we're talking to teacher, poet, and writer, Patrice Vecchioni. You can follow the High Poetry Collective at High Poetry on Twitter, 
or at the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows archived so you can listen at any time. I want to go back to this poem, especially the fact that, as you said, it's really a, it's not only a tribute to your mother, but it's a, uh, a reflection, a commentary on the state of women, especially in light of what's happening with Roe v. Wade currently. Uh, and I want to give you time to comment on that. But before I do, I want to remark on the beautiful use of anaphora that you've done in this poem, using the word before, which is such a both pregnant and nostalgic word in both ends of, of, of our observation, our use of it. So I really felt it was gorgeous the way you use that throughout the poem to bring in your reflection on your mother, which I know wasn't an easy relationship for you no. and reconceive it as something with more understanding for her as you've aged. So brava to you for that. It brings tears to my eyes when you say that because it, it's, such a, it's such a shame that it takes so long to, to, to get that understanding and, and that compassion. I mean, my mom died when she was, when I was 20, when I was 29 and she was 65 and I'll be 65 in a few months, uh, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But I never, I never had um, enough compassion for her. And I, I feel, I feel sorry about that. But of course, that's the, the dilemma, right? Of the, the mother daughter relationship oftentimes it is it is it is and that that post uh post the loss of someone with whom we've had a very intimate and complicated relationship i think always brings up many many things many of them for which we're not necessarily proud and we have to reckon with nonetheless yeah so I appreciate this poem for that, for what you've done, because I think there's a lot of community in that poem. There's a lot of us that are in that same position, whether or not it's a mother or a father or a friend or a child, or, you know, we, we it really speaks to the importance of the moment and being there fully with as much understanding as we can, but that's a very tall order, so. <laughs> Especially when we're young, you know. Especially when we're young, yeah. But but if you will comment on, on this poem, and the, I know that you've done a lot of work um, for Planned Parenthood and um, other organizations and just the, the arc of your development as a feminist, how have, has that dovetailed with the writing of this poem? Well, you know, my mother was a feminist. She, she, I don't, she would never have used that word to describe herself. But when I was a little girl, she, she gave me books of biographies of women, Eleanor Roosevelt, Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman. And these were the books she handed me. And, and when I made my first communion when I was eight years old, she said to me, 
right before we went to the church, I was dressed up like that little bride. And she said, look at yourself in the mirror. Now you will never see yourself in a veil again, which sounds horrible when I tell it, but it wasn't horrible. It wasn't horrible for me as that little girl. I didn't understand it really, but I knew her intention was loving. And what she was really saying to me is you will have choices and that I didn't have. Uh, my mother was very smart. She was never satisfied in work. She wanted to be satisfied in work. And I watched my mother ground down by both my father and by the, she supported the family for a number of years. And I would watch her and I would say, I am going to live a different life. I am going to, this is my life, damn it. I'm taking this thing and I'm making something out of it that nobody has made before, not following anybody's map, which was partly a little bit of, of bravado and it, it was a false confidence, um, but, but it is what I ended up doing. And um, so I think I'm, um, I think I'm desperately sad, you know, Julia, about where we are as women in this country right now, that we're about to lose the right to make a primary choice about our own bodies. And I mean, who voted for Trump? Trump had more women voters than he had men voters. That's true. So, so there's something really, really wrong and so far out of my control. And, and, and but I'm determined to, to do what I can. You know, it's why I published this essay about having an abortion, you know, that's coming out tomorrow, which I know we're, this is airing well after that, but, um, and I think this poem is the way I found to, um, to write about it in a way that is not, um, is not, is not externally political, you know, you know. The yeah, article that's coming out talks about has statistics from, you know, this organization, this, you know, it's like, this is this many women and da, 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 da. Um, I, I don't, I think when you're raised with an alcoholic parent, you don't do well, or many of us don't do well living in lies and falsehood and contradiction. And that really is why I became a writer, because nobody was going to tell me what is and what isn't. Wealthy women have gotten abortions and will get abortions regardless of what happens with Roe v. Wade. Of course. That's not going to change. Who are we messing with? We're messing with, we're messing with women's psychology, for one, and we're messing with women of little means. And that's who I was when I was 18, 19, whatever I was. 19 and had an abortion. I didn't have very much money. I called the Women's Health Collective in Santa Cruz and they gave me the name of Dr. Vanoy in Aptos. Bless his soul. He was my doctor too. God, Julia. Wow. Yeah. A terrifically gentle, supportive man. He was. He really was. 
Yes, that was, thank goodness he was there. And we are, we are so running the risk for those, those women who don't have money, whose lives will be very much different. And we're, we're taking several steps back in time, unfortunately. Yeah. So I appreciate this poem and I love the fact that you've, you know, you've taken us to that arena through by not saying what needs to be said and yet very much saying what needs to be said. So thank you. Thanks. Well, thank you. I don't think I would have written this poem without you asking me to do this interview. In fact, I know I wouldn't have written it. Oh, good. Yeah. Excellent. So let's, let's go to this next poem. I want to make sure to get this one in um, before we, it's so good to talk to you and we could talk for hours, but I want to get to your work. So would you read this next poem? Sure. So the, the call for, for poetry from the uh, Sid Perlman dance company was a, about poetry um, to save the earth, really, to honor the earth. And um, I somewhere had read this quote from somebody named Valerie Massey, who I don't know. She said, I felt like I was covered in sugar when I would leave. She was writing about working for the Wrigley gum plant <laughs> hmm. in Santa Cruz, which is hmm. now beautiful gallery space. And, um, and I used to go to that Wrigley gum plant when I was, a kid and uh, they would give you gum. And I don't know why, I don't know why that line took me here, but here's the poem. It's called, Covered in Sugar Thrown Carelessly. I felt like I was covered in sugar when I would leave, Valerie Massey. Leaving each time I felt covered in sugar, a coat of it thrown carelessly across my shoulders by someone I could not see. When my knees buckled under me, I lifted my face, sang to the trees and the birds, thrush and thrasher, yellow finch, and even the shy orange-bellied flicker sang back. When the ground threatened to consume my feet, I sat down so the earth might find me trustworthy, might believe I was not running away though I was, with nowhere to go, we all were. When I was no more open than the door to a house cracked open, I closed the books of my eyes and felt wind enter as though I were a prairie. Prairie, that light. When I was smaller than crumbs from yesterday's lunch, I held on to tomorrow. But when tomorrow came, it was empty of promise, though promise was the surname I'd been instructed to give it, Mrs. Tomorrow Promise. And how does one live with that? When instructed, I am no longer embarrassed to say, often I refuse the lesson with the deliberateness I admire yet, looking out the window instead for what might be reliable, the promise of river water beyond the trees, the plea of water, each lap of it asking every wavelet. Of course, I paid attention to that. With all my shiny silver coins, made equally of water. 
even though through the window, it was only a shadow of an idea that I could see or imagine wrinkling and unwrinkling like so many shadows, a burbling I could almost hear. When the chill made the branches leafless, they gladly parted, at least I always thought of it that way, making room for me to peer from my desk, past the heads of the other children, across the street to the traveling water, always going somewhere, always present, yet always going away, and an occasional boat. Water, the wish then that when met is still wished for. When I was winter, all bitter edges and ice, there was little gladness. I was never embraced. And spring, I'm not sure I can remember back to the buds, to the sweet scent of making pollen, the waking bees in their bright furry coats, their little legs all loaded up like yellow bloomers. Though something akin to brightness is conjured. When I was summer, I was undressed daily though never, not for long, slow days, wet heat, coupled with spring and tall grass, pink petals and rain slick leaves revealed, more consumed, even when the hunger of others was voracious, just celebrated. I was celebrated and it was enough. When I was fall, no more than a single leaf uplifted, almost curling, brilliant as a sunset, I fell. Not all order has been dismantled, I count on the things I can and those uncountable, even when anxiously aware of, of warning, the snap fingers that change everything we all in our animal nature do. It was a long time ago that I was summer. We have had this winter for decades. Still, I'm a fan of promise and of leaving covered in something sweet, sugar or yellow pollen. When the future comes, mark my words with diamonds or dung. I'll be past it. Hmm. Thank you, Patrice. That's quite an homage, really. Yeah. So I just love so many of the lines in here. Uh, the the door, the door ajar, is a beautiful line. Um, talk a little bit about, we just have a few more minutes, um, about five more minutes left. Talk a little bit more about this poem and how you came to it, other than its being for Sid and that, that uh, potential use of it as part of her work. So it was just, it was, you know, sometimes it just, like with you, it just takes an invitation, right, to it's like poetry is, is, is behind a curtain, only you don't know that the curtain is there. You think it's a wall. And all the time I'd think it's a wall, it's a wall. And all of a sudden I went, no, oh my goodness, it's a curtain. And I just pull, move it away and I walk into the room where the poem can happen. And, um, you know, I just, I feel, um, I, I, I often feel almost incapable of functioning out of my fear and worry for the planet. And I, I, I feel desperate about um, our lack of regard and how we've gotten here, how we didn't listen in the 1970s when we really, something really could have changed and how it's the greed of men that, has, that, that really prevented um, us from shifting the course so that the world could be um, a, a, a 
a livable place for for the long time for the future. I, I didn't ever want children. I don't have children. I'm really now particularly glad I don't have children because I I already have a hard enough time coping with this emotionally. I mean, you got to be a little screwed up to be a writer, right? You you know, you got a little bit of Oh, absolutely. The scales need to be tipped in some towards some kind of neuroses. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes for me, too much comes in. And so this poem was really about, it was about my love of the earth. I, I walk on the earth a lot. I took a five mile walk this morning. You know, I, 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 I need to be out there and I also feel devastated. So this poem comes out of feeling an alliance with nature and also a, a tremendous amount of remorse. Hang on. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the High Poetry Collective on KSQD FM 90.7. I'm Julia Chiapella, and I'm speaking today with Patrice Vecchioni. But we can't be consumed by the remorse. I think that's the, the we come to a close here. I think that's the, the really the most important thing to me is well, if, we, I, if we succumb to remorse, we, we, we're useless to ourselves and each other. Yeah. And, and creativity is a fuel and, and we need to fuel ourselves and each other in order to endure and in order to find the imagination is ineffable and it's also deep and, and the possibilities we have for, for the future of the planet I think we're only getting to get there through the imagination. Absolutely. So, so we need it for community. We need it for ourselves. We need it for the future. We do all, all those things. And that to my mind has been such a contribution that you've given to our community because you continually inspire the imagination and others. So I really want to thank you for that. And it's so lovely to talk to you today. We just have a couple more minutes. Is there anything you'd like to else you'd like to say in closing? Well, I'd like people to know that I'll be teaching at the Catamaran uh, Writing Conference this summer. It's at, um, at Pebble Beach at um, Stevenson School. And that I offer writing workshops for women. This summer, I'll be leading three workshops in my backyard and people are welcome to for women writers who are vaccinated <laughs> people are welcome to women are welcome to get in touch and um oh the main thing is grab a notebook and open it up you don't know what will happen you magic never, you never know yeah and for our listeners who are out there know that we will have that information for how you can sign up for the catamaran um, writing retreat and also patrice's workshops on our website so thank you so much patrice for being here with the high poetry collective today and i'm really happy that you were inspired to write some more poetry and interestingly enough though poetry has inspired your fiction or the, the, the journalism and the writing, the nonfiction that you're doing, I think that's also now informing your poetry. So it's a lovely little oh, circle that's happening. So that's a good point. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So thank you so much again for being here. You've been listening to Patrice Vecchioni as part of the Hive Collective's 
Poetry Hour here on KSQD-FM. And to wrap up this hour of the hive, I'd like to read some poems that were written by some of the students participating in Word Lab, which is a local after-school program initially started in 2012 by myself, but then is now run by Wendy Thompson. And it's a place where students can come and write what they would like to write in an after-school setting, although there is also an in-school program as well, if teachers are interested in embedding a six to eight week program here locally. You can go to the youngwritersc.org website and look that up. But particularly because Patrice has been so involved with students locally and afar in encouraging their voices, I thought it would be nice to wind up some today's uh, program with a few of our local voices that are burgeoning poets. So this, these first two poems are by Anais, who is a local fifth grader, or was a fifth grader. She'll be going on to sixth, I'm sure. And both of these poems start with the line, not a true story. The first is called Dark Shadows. Sometimes I am like a shadow. I am as dark as midnight, as black as coal, as lonely as a ghost, as meaningless as a shadow, a blur of colors and images to everyone. In the shadows, black corners, I am a shadow. We live among evil and good happiness and sadness, evil, sad. If I could change to good, happy, that would mean the world to me. Change the assumptions of everyone. Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, without me, search for me constantly. Learn a lesson or two from them. Then I could change, finally. And this next one by Anais is called The Garden Book. The curious little girl came to my library the other day. She said something had drawn her there. I started to worry. She found the book nobody looked at. What's this? She asked. I told her not to touch it and that I only had it because I couldn't get rid of it. Not many years ago and not now. I spoke of the powers it had. She did not stop looking at it. I told her she couldn't take it. She didn't listen, she took it home. I knew it was too late. Soon enough, the police will come to my house. I will never be free from the book now. It was much too late for me and her. This next poem is by Oliver, who is 13 years old and says he coexists peacefully with the other beings of Santa Cruz. And Oliver's poem is called Humanity's Great Invention, a poem in three parts. One, poems so expressive, people so oppressive, 
Technology, so inventive, but is it any good? The computer, a symbol of technology. The phone, a picture of curiosity. The radio, old fashioned. People from 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, wouldn't believe it, wouldn't believe tech, wouldn't think of a tape a deck, let alone a computer. And us, we've come to rely on our phones as much as our very bones. Two, instead of maps to guide us, GPS is there to find us. Systems are in place to send a ship into space. We're smart enough to realize, we're smart enough to, we're smart enough, we're smart, we're, but are we? Are we smart enough to turn it off? to become ourselves, not stuck to a computer again? Is our reliability on the screen something we can't change? Three, blast that music, play those chords, turn those blues into telltale tunes. But what are you playing? What do you choose? You're playing music on your telephone. Is it still the same? Is it still untamed? Is music even music? online? Who knows? It could be. It's a shame. It would be. We're stuck. But are we? Can we get out? Well, can we? Can we get out? How could we? Or are we too stuck in technology? And the last two poems that I will read are by Bella. And Bella says that they have finally returned to Santa Cruz. It took five years, but she's thankfully back. She's 12 years old and crazy about books. The first poem is actually in two parts. The first is a walk down Luna Lane. The day on Luna Lane is over. The sun long set, the shades long drawn, and yet the night has just begun. Old Mr. Walters plays a tinkling melody on an instrument fashioned from old bottles while Mrs. O'Malley sings a haunting tune. The moon rises full and bright, showering the dancing people below in light. For the night on Luna Lane has just begun, right as your walk has ended. A day on Luna Lane. The sleepy people of Luna Lane blearily step from their homes. A day just beginning for you, but their day is already done. Old Mr. Walters straightens his flowers made from dinner plates while Mrs. O'Malley sends her children to school. The sun beats down on their backs, hot and unpleasant. For the day has just begun for you, right as theirs has ended. And this last poem that I'll be reading is also by Bella, and it's called Unforgiven. Cold, black, hate. It tears, unrelenting at its victims. It has no shape, no form. It is only it, seeking only to hurt, to dehumanize by bitter people who fear who don't understand, 
people who forget that hate has no fine line, no clear definition, and are swallowed whole until they lose empathy and are left only with cold black hate, until they hurt others who are people too, people who they fear because they are different from them. But those people, those people are doomed to be unforgiven. So those are a few poems from the students participating in Word Lab this year. Thank you for listening to them. And be sure and look up the Young Writers Program if you're interested. And many thanks again to Patrice for being with us tonight and for all the work she's done with children and writers locally to support their voices. You have been listening to KSQD FM 90.7, the High Poetry Collective. And I'm your host, Julia Chiapella. Thank you all for listening.